0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger, one of the NBN hosts, and today I'm privileged to be joined by the political economist Stephen Roach, a senior fellow at the Paul Tsai China Center at Yale Law School. Dr. Roach joined the Yale faculty in 2010 after 30 years at Morgan Stanley mainly as the firm's chief economist, heading up a highly regarded global team, followed by several years as the Hong Kong-based chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia. He was able to draw on his rich capital markets and investment banking experience and developed popular new courses on Asia, notably The Next China and The Lessons of Japan. The professor's writing has appeared in both domestic, and international media, as well as academic journals, and in his congressional testimony over the years. Some listeners uh, may recall his C-SPAN, Charlie Rose Show, more recent CBN appearances, or, or one or both of his first two books. His 2009, The Next Asia, Opportunities and Challenges for a New Globalization, and his 2014, Unbalanced, The Codependency of America and China. Today, though, we want to talk about his 2022 Yale University Press publication of Accidental Conflict, America, China, and the Clash of False Narratives, a well-timed assessment focused on what may well amount to the world's most significant risk now and for the foreseeable future. The Deeply Troubled U.S.-China Relationship. This is not, though, just another book in a depressing genre of the bilateral relations. It offers tangible hope from an economist respected in policy circles both in Beijing and Washington. That is, in terms of a plan for conflict resolution. Professor Roach, Stephen, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today about your highly relevant new book.
1: Thank you, Keith. It's a pleasure to be with you and um, address many of the issues that I know are also important to you and uh, your listeners.
0: Uh, let's start uh, with the courses you've designed and taught at Yale University. Uh, one in particular is called Next China. Uh What are the aims of the course and how have you adapted your syllabus and primary readings over the last decade of the changing U.S.-China relationship? Your students at Yale, no doubt, expect a challenging experience given your economics training. How do you balance the quantitative aspects of your approach?
1: Well, the, the next China really um, was something that arose out of my Wall Street background. When I decided to transition from a Wall Street back to academia, I was urged to teach a course up about China. And um, I had spent a lot of my professional career at Wall Street uh, either uh, working or living in China or thinking long and hard about it. And when when you are confronted with designing a course that is relevant to your training and experience, it's, it's a pretty daunting challenge. And I, for a while, was struggling with what I could bring to Uh, the Yale classroom to bright, intelligent students who have extraordinary uh, menu of courses to select from. And my research at Morgan Stanley was always forward-looking, developing analytical frameworks to try to figure out where economies, the United States, Japan, China, were headed, but based on quantitative evidence viewed through an analytical prism. And it struck me that back in in 2010, when I first started teaching at Yale, that there there were a lot of uh, courses at Yale uh, that were backward-looking, historical, when it comes to China or other nations and economies. And my strength was really more uh, in the forward-looking realm primarily because for most of my career, I had been an economic forecaster starting at the Federal Reserve Board in Washington. And so the theme that I came up with was, where is China headed? And I called it, in concise terms, the next China, recognizing that there were lots of sort of alternative scenarios one could come up with. But I had been developing what I thought was an evidence-fact Uh, in sound analytical framework that focused on the transition of China from the very powerful Deng Xiaoping model focused on exports and investment to one that reflected the critique of former Premier Wen Jiabao in in 2007, just before I came to Yale, uh, claiming that the Deng Xiaoping model was greatly successful but needed to be changed to focus on a rebalancing toward internal private consumption because the Deng Xiaoping model itself was uh, too unbalanced, unstable, uh, uncoordinated, and ultimately unsustainable. And it was a really a brilliant critique. And that gave me a, I thought, a well-grounded political economy framework to envision what some of the forces would be to Push and define the coming transition uh, in the Chinese economy. So it was an economics course grounded in the political economy of uh, Chinese leadership and set in the context of an increasingly China-dependent, interdependent uh, world economy. And I, it was a very popular course. At its peak, I had probably uh, 250 students uh, enrolled in it over the 13 years that I taught the course there were uh, close to 1500 students uh, who have taken it and uh, I put an enormous amount of effort into the course I recognized and I wrote this I think in um, in the preface to one of my books that the next China is a moving target the idea that you know there is a fixed target out there that we should always focus on I think belies the changing circumstances that nations like China face, but um, I stuck with it. And, um, you know, it's still an active part of my focus in looking at China. I'd have to say that as I look back on the 13 to 14 years that started with the, um, uh, the first offering of the course, that there's been progress on the road to the next China, but there's also been some disappointments along the way that are still challenging and um, certainly, you know, good food for thought in academic institutions like Yale.
0: Uh, thanks um, for that. Uh, to what extent do you feel that uh, student attitudes um, regarding the U.S.-China relationship have noticeably changed since your first year of teaching?
1: Well, I think the student interest and appreciation of China at, at Yale has always been strong. The sentiment toward China ebbs and flows in terms of how the, the students feel about uh, China's growth, development, especially now uh, as the conflict deepens with the United States. But I would draw a sharp distinction between the overwhelmingly strident anti-China feeling in Washington that is reflected in public polling polls uh, that are so negative right now, that I think the students that I meet with uh, at Yale are still, I think, much more constructive uh, about the prospects and challenges of this um, next China. There certainly are some uh, issues that they would find worrisome as the conflict deepens, um, you know, latest frictions um, whether they're in the Taiwan Straits, the South China Sea, the surveillance balloon. These are all topics that get actively discussed on campuses like Yale. And I think students are, I won't say they're willing to cut China slack, but they're willing to be less strident, less polemic, less unforgiving of a different system than our politicians are inclined to do. So there, there. It's a, I, I think, a, a far more nuanced uh, perspective uh, at Yale.
0: Thanks. That's a good way to 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 put it. Um, and do appreciate you sharing your teaching experience and approach. Um, it strikes me as a good place to start. I think in terms of really highlighting an impressive career that is, um, at core, about educating others, uh, whether the U.S. and investment and business community, Asia-focused investors, uh, your peers in economics and finance, government leaders and regulators, or the public more broadly, uh, through your lectures in Asia, um, your media appearances, and congressional testimony in the U.S., and not to mention meetings with uh, Chinese leadership, uh, nor the elite students in your courses at Yale, as you've uh, you've just talked about. That said, you've been a witness to the ongoing deterioration of relations uh, between China and the United States over the years. There's much at stake here now and in the near future, and your broader scholarship brings a much needed coherence and consistency to what amounts to a study of comparative political systems in the form of this uh, bilateral relationship. It's not inconsequential that your opinion is respected both in China and in the United States, lending your book's argument a sense of legitimacy, I think, sorely lacking in our polarized era of questioning expertise within our longstanding anti-intellectual tradition. So the timing of your latest book through uh, Yale University Press, again, Accidental Conflict, America, China, China and the clash of false narratives truly appears at a critical juncture. Uh, Those familiar with your previous work will see the continuity and deepening of the relationship metaphor within your line of reasoning. Um, Before we get into it, though, I want to call your attention to the book's cover design, which struck me as both retro and reminiscent of Rube Goldberg drawings. uh, With the intertwining red and blue-suited, overextended arms and hands and fingers in all manner of configurations uh, framing your subtitle America China and the clash of false narratives. My nostalgic evidence for this claim is the iconic book cover of a policy classic implementation by Pressman and Wodolski, who used different Goldberg drawings on their second and third editions. Look book cover design like album cover art no doubt has its own aficionados and my Goldberg reference may seem a reach uh, to some readers. That said, Accidental Conflict will not likely be remembered in its second and third expanded editions for Goldberg-like cover design changes, but rather for your choice of framing two culturally diverse countries and economically codependent nations. Uh, within the realm of psychology, as a relationship with Cold War-like qualities, Uh, but more significantly, because you also offer a plan for conflict resolution. Book covers and expanded editions aside, let's move on to how you organize your argument. You divided the book into four parts. The first one is titled On Relationships. Let's start there. Is this the first time as an economist, uh, you have so explicitly applied the psychology of individual relationships to an institutional setting, namely the dire straits of the China and U.S. political and economic situation?
1: Uh, no, it's not, Keith. First, just a word on on the cover. I've done a lot of book talks in the last few months, and you're the first person to take note of the cover. I'm I'm actually very pleased with the cover myself uh, the prior book also uh, put out by the same publisher unbalanced i thought the cover was truly terrible and uh, you know coming out of wall street i'm sort of a marketing guy and i think that I, I agree with you that books will never be remembered for their covers but if you're trying to get the attention whether it's on a website or on a shelf in a bookstore it's nice to have something jump off the uh, the shelf and grab your eyes And the multiple arms pointing, gesturing, different gestures, and if you look carefully, uh, two of them formed in a heart-shaped pattern over the subtitle, uh, The Class of False Narratives, send a lot of, I think, important hints as to what you can expect inside the cover. But in terms of your question about relationships, my 2014 book, Unbalanced, did lay out for the first time my view that the two-way interdependency uh, between the United States and the Chinese economies could be viewed through the psychological lens of a codependency. Two partners in a relationship that starts off uh, innocently, you might call it a marriage of convenience, but then it deepens as the partners almost lose sight of themselves and draw an increasingly larger portion of their sustenance from the reactions and rewards of their partnership with the other. In Accidental Conflict, though, I explored uh, the dark side of uh, codependency in great detail and drew much more heavily uh, on advances in behavioral economics, especially narrative economics, as developed by my Yale colleague, uh, Nobel Prize winner Robert Scheller, in leading the reader to consider how a codependent economic relationship can go really very badly off the tracks. And the theory is pretty simple. If you go back to human psychology, codependency works as long as the partners are sort of content with the rules of engagement they have set up to define their relationship. But human nature is such that partners are never equally content nothing is forever. One partner usually changes the terms of engagement, uh, and that becomes inherently destabilizing to the other partner who does not, and that elicits a sense of discomfort, uh, frictions, ultimately uh, accusations and blame that could lead to a fundamental fracture, if not a breakup, in the relationship. Uh, I concluded that while it's a stretch to apply the pathology of human psychology to economies, that there was enough there that resonated with my assessment of the U.S.-China relationship to use that framework to examine what has happened to these two powerful economies. And my theory, uh, in a nutshell, is that both nations are surprisingly vulnerable. The United States uh, has serious problems with its own lack of uh, domestic savings that I address in the book that draw into question its long-term sources of growth, uh, innovation, and productivity. And uh, China, for reasons I hinted at earlier, has not completed the economic rebalancing that is so vital for its sustainable growth. And yet, as they address these shortcomings, these vulnerabilities, in the context of their own political economies, their leaders, their politicians, uh, their appointed party officials refuse to accept responsibility for these shortcomings and prefer instead to blame it on their most prominent partner. And so the the false narratives arise out of the political expediency of blame that has manifested both inside of China and inside of the US and the dueling false narratives uh, on both sides of the relationship is what leads to the high octane fuel of conflict escalation that has been so evident uh, in the last five years as we've quickly gone from a trade war to a tech war to a new cold war. Uh, And it doesn't take much of a spark to ignite that high octane fuel and produce a a full-blown accidental conflict were it not for the false narratives were it not for two nations who who were insecure in their own sense of um, prospects and prosperity we could have avoided this dangerous conflict but politically we've not been inclined to do that
0: very near the end of the first part of the book again which is on relationships Uh, You comment on public opinion to open a broader point about the need for a framework of public engagement that we will get to uh, later. Uh, But first, let me try to put a few things together. You wrote, correcting false narratives or even containing their viral spread is not a sufficient anecdote for poisoned public opinion. I realize uh, the idea that public opinion may be divided on our values and a shared history in the United States is not something new to um, our listeners. But one coalescing factor these days seems to be uh, the shared hostility toward the PRC uh, across the aisle. And like yourself, as noted in the book, I, I thought the incoming Biden administration would show the kind of leadership necessary to walk back Trump administration trade policy in Asia. That said, the long-standing American domestic polarization remains a key variable. January 6th uh, will resonate, I think, for some time to come. Uh, Last week, the Foreign Policy Research Institute launched a new podcast called First Draft, hosted by Robert Kaplan and Dominic Green. Uh, At one point, uh, they were commenting on the lack of unity in the U.S., uh, vitriol was the word Kaplan used. It seemed like an apt term for how strongly America is ideologically split. Green went on to say that a coherent foreign policy is not even possible without some domestic consensus, and I quote, on what a nation should be about. It brought me back to the second part of your book, America's False Narratives of China, where you make it clear. Uh, that false narratives have contributed to and encouraged our most tragic American foreign policy conflicts since the start of the Cold War, all well before our most recent uh, relationship downturn uh, with China. Can you talk to us about the significance of America's false narratives? And you've already started that. You end your introduction to the second part of your book by asking the, the tough but necessary question, Why must the United States always flirt with conflict to defend its core principles and universal values? That, though, is your lead-in question for the foreign policy mistakes you call our attention to since the start of the original Cold War. Um, Can you share a bit of your reasoning with regard to the stark meaning of your book's main title, Accidental Conflicts, and how are false narratives of China are partly rooted in, as you put it, a Reaganist version of American culture.
1: Well, there's a lot to unpack there, Keith, but let me just give you an example of my um, leading false narrative that is widely embraced on a bipartisan basis in the United States with respect to China. And it's largely contained in chapter four called Bilateral Bluster, the first of four chapters on America's false narratives of China. And it focuses on trade, because if there's one narrative that Americans embrace on from both ends of the political spectrum, reinforced by their leaders in Washington, by the reporting of so much of our media in congressional testimony, especially very recently, is We have a serious foreign trade problem, a large record foreign trade deficit. Deficits are bad. They put pressure on companies, on industries, their workers, and their communities. The largest portion of our trade deficit is with China by a wide margin, and China has been alleged to cheat across the board in terms of unfair trading practices, ranging from intellectual property theft, to industrial espionage, to illegal subsidies of state-owned enterprises, to forced technology transfer, and the like. And therefore, we must penalize China. And that was the essence of the argument that former President Trump made to impose very large tariffs on a large swath of goods uh, that are shipped from China to the United States. What qualifies as a false narrative, in my view, is taking a fact-based representation of a problem, but exaggerating it uh, to make a a contentious and erroneous policy conclusion. Yes, we have a trade deficit. Yes, the biggest piece of it is with China. But trade deficits do not occur in a vacuum for any nation. They reflect a shortfall of domestic savings. And when we do not save enough, and America has an extremely low domestic savings rate, then we must import surplus savings from abroad, run a big balance of payments deficit to attract the capital, and that creates a phenomenon of multilateral trade deficits, deficits with many, many countries. Last year, for example, we had trade deficits in the United States with 106 countries, the trade representative for President Trump, a man by the name of Robert Lighthizer, put out a large report in early 2018, a so-called Section 301 report, that lays bare all of the allegations of unfair trading practices that became the foundational evidence supporting the tariffs that were soon to follow. In my book, again in Chapter 4, I go through the Lighthizer Section 301 report in great detail, and I won't bore you with this right now, other than saying to read the book, but I point out that most of his allegations are lacking in valid evidence and would not really qualify for submission in any court of law in the United States. So what's the false narrative here? The false narrative is that we have a a trade deficit, China's a big piece of it, but it's our fault because we do not save enough. If we saved more, reduced our budget deficits, and boosted um, personal savings on a sustained basis, which we have not, the need for trade deficits with China and 105 other countries would diminish. So it's not China's fault that we are in a deficit uh, position in saving that requires us to run trade deficits with 106 other nations. That, to me, is a classic false narrative. We'd rather blame China for a self-inflicted problem than take the actions at home to address the circumstances that have given rise to the shortfall of saving, which gives us these multilateral trade deficits.
0: I recently spoke with Professor Ryan Brooks about a book he's recently written called American Fiction and Neoliberalism in the Clinton Era. I mention it only because of fiction, even as it caricatures, uh, amplifies some of our narratives. Um, One of the books mentioned was American Psycho, uh, which has a scene at a U2 concert where the 20-something yuppie Wall Street guys and their girlfriends have front row seats because Japanese clients uh, were not able to use the tickets. Um, The psycho uh, and the yuppie who ended up with his Japanese clients' tickets are are having a shouting conversation in the midst of the rock concert, uh, with the psycho shouting to the other guy about the dinner reservations after the concert. And when it's suggested that they may not make it on time, uh, the psycho suggests going for Japanese instead. Uh, But the other guy, who ended up with with the tickets uh, for the concert, shouts back this, I hate the Japanese little slanty-eyed bastards. They save more than we do, and they don't innovate much. But they sure know how to take, steal our innovations, improve on them, and then ram them down our throats. That's why I hate Japanese food. He then makes a gagging motion with one finger uh, going down his uh, his throat. I I shortened it and censored for the two F-bombs used as adjectives, which is just as well for really highlighting the narrative here, which generalizes from business and economic terms, savings, innovation, theft of trade secrets, and implying an exploitation of the trading partner on some level. As you just did, can you share a bit more about how we do something similar with the Chinese these days? Because you have a broad Asian experience. So this anti-Asian underlying racism. It's been plaguing American history. But you touch on an uncomfortable
1: aspect of the American character, and that that is, uh, you know, a strong strain of white Christian nationalism that seems to be intolerant of outsiders who might threaten the perpetuation of that group uh, in a position of of power. And it has arisen in, um, you know, our racial issues over time and the way that we uh, have addressed you know, hate crimes uh, recently, to whether they are directed uh, at anti-Semitism or, unfortunately, uh, Asian Americans. I do make uh, some explicit reference to the identity politics uh, that are evident, um, especially in comparing the Japan bashing of the 1980s with today's China bashing. And I Make explicit mention of the tragic death of a Chinese young Chinese American man, Vincent Chin, who was murdered in a bar fight uh, in Detroit in the in the 1980s by disaffected U.S. auto workers who had felt their jobs were being threatened by Japanese car manufacturers, and so they got in a fight and murdered Vincent Chin because they thought he was Japanese when in fact he was actually a Chinese American. And that's not just the tragedy of being able to make the distinction, uh, but, you know, a clear manifestation of how deep these feelings do play on many of the longstanding uh, insecurities uh, and in levels of intolerance uh, in a polarized American uh, society. So, I do worry about that a lot, and um the fact that we have allowed that intolerance to to dominate our public opinion in any way whatsoever remains you know disturbing commentary on you know, America that you know Ronald Reagan described as the you know the bright shining city on the hill on the American uh, dream that um was articulated in the nineteen thirties. Uh, that painted, um, you know, America uh, as a land of opportunity and uh, openness and uh, providing the ability of one generation to do better than the next. Um, These are very noble aspirations and goals, but from time to time, and often more times than not, we have not lived up to them. And I worry that a lot of that's what's going on right now with respect to China. If you... um, and I'm sure you have, view the recent hearings of the U.S. House of Representatives, either the new Select Committee on China uh, that held its first hearing on February 28th of this year, or um, other hearings that interrogated the Singaporean uh, CEO of uh, a Chinese subsidiary, TikTok, uh, you will find a, a strident anti-China militaristic view that uh, is very reminiscent of hearings that were held um, in the U.S. Congress in the early 1950s, initially by the House Committee on Un-American Activities that led to race beating, uh and the rise of a, a, a very destabilizing force that we now know as uh, McCarthyism, uh, not for hinting at the current Speaker of the House, but named after a senator, Joseph McCarthy from the, the state of Wisconsin. So this is a, a worrisome aspect, um, letting these, this history of bias creep into our economic and policy discourse and not really having um, you know, any, anyone with political courage, either in the executive branch or the Congress, to stand up, as was said to uh, Senator McCarthy in the early 1950s, The comment that stopped him in his tracks is, have you no decency, sir? Uh, And shortly after that, McCarthyism came to an end. He was censured by the Senate, and um, the intensity of that red-baiting subsided. We have not gotten to that point yet, but we may well uh, be headed to a similar juncture in history.
0: Yeah, no, thanks for connecting those dots, including the uh, tragedy of Chen the Chinese American in Detroit, because Brett Easton Ellis in his novel, the next one of the next scenes after that, the American psycho then takes it upon himself to grab a Asian delivery guy, kills him, blah blah blah, then realizes, he sees that the food is Chinese takeout, goes right back to um, your Chen story there. So Ellis was probably drawing uh, directly on on life there, so the idea of uh, life imitating art. In this case, it's art imitating life. Well, you also uh, make clear it takes two to tango as you counterbalance America's perspective bias and denial uh, with China's false narratives of America. Uh, The third part of your book, you make the point that the flow of distorting information Uh, Whether via social networks in the US or the PRC state censorship, are key to the ongoing, as you put it, confluence of falsehoods. It's an interesting way to describe it, but your point is really about how differently the systems distort information. Can you share with us some of your thinking in this rejoinder to our own false narratives?
1: Let me just give you a little bit of a preamble. I felt strongly based on years of work, that it was wrong to write a book about America having a China problem, and it was wrong to write a book about China having an America problem, and I felt, uh, most importantly, that we both have a relationship problem with each other. And so, just as America is predisposed toward many false narratives about China because it is politically convenient for us to have someone else to blame for some of our own shortcomings and vulnerabilities, I felt that China was susceptible to the same tendency. And my classic example of that is very recent, actually. In March of this year, which postdates the publication of the book, but is certainly in line with many of the points that I made uh, in uh, part three, Xi Jinping at the uh, National People's Congress explicitly named the United States, being responsible for policies of all-around encirclement, suppression, and containment of a Chinese development. Now I think that's a classic false narrative. Again, it's it's fact-based to some extent. There, there can be no denying the realization that the United States has now come clean. In um, advocating a policy of containment with respect to China. You know, we talked earlier. um, One of the big surprises is the transition from Trump to Biden. Things didn't change, didn't go back to the way they were. Biden, on his first day in office, uh, signed 14 executive orders remanding most of the unpopular policies of the Trump administration construction of the border wall in Mexico, the Muslim travel ban. He rejoined the Paris Agreement on climate change. He rejoined the World Health Organization, but he did not uh, abandon Trump's tariffs. And in the ensuing couple of years, he's tightened the news further, especially by imposing uh, sanctions on Chinese use of advanced uh, technologies. These are, I think, potentially more powerful in containing China than um, Trump's tariffs. So we, we certainly do in the United States now, politically, even though we deny it, embrace a policy of containment. But the false narrative, Keith, is that that's not what is uh, inhibiting or limiting Chinese growth and development. China has failed to take the necessary steps to stimulate internal private consumption by chronically underinvesting in its social safety net. Uh, retirement and healthcare. And so with the rapid aging of the Chinese society and the working age population has been contracting now since 2016, consumers are much more predisposed to save for an uncertain future than they are willing to put their money to work in driving more of a full-throttled consumer-led growth model than Wen Jiabao envisioned Uh, in 2007. The consumption share of the Chinese economy today is less than 40%. That's the lowest consumption share of any major economy in the world. Uh, And so the false narrative for China is to not accept responsibility for the policies that are inhibiting its growth and development by failing to invest in a safety net, but in turn to, to turn those shortcomings Uh, into um, an invective of blame against American containment. That has nothing to do with China's failed consumer-led rebalancing. Uh, And that's just one of the many false narratives that I address in looking at the other side of the same coin, two vulnerable nations that blame their self-inflicted shortcomings on
0: each other. Some of the points that you make in this part of the book are quite well visualized by your chapter titles. Chapter eight is censorship as conflict. Chapter nine, consumerism and animal spirits. People will find that quite interesting. Chapter 10, China with American characteristics. And chapter 11, which closes out that particular part of the book, a new model of major country relationships. We don't have the time, nor is our intent here to summarize your book. The real interest and nuance is indeed in gaining an understanding of its details. And this part and its individual chapters is no exception. You bring over a quarter of a century of experience to this book, both on the ground and in terms of your political and economic understanding of the interplay uh, between these two different systems, each a republic in name and overlaid with their own domestic issues and regional uh, variations. Uh, That said, rather than trying to um, uh, pick out any one particular um, chapter, uh, because they all contain uh, information of consequence to your argument, do you wanna share any more takeaways, say, of interest, whether on censorship, animal spirits, emulating America, or the issue of broken promises on, on both sides? of this relationship.
1: For me, that's a hard choice because I'm so heavily invested in, in all of them. But I, I will maybe draw out one of the more controversial segments of the book where I am highly critical of state-sponsored censorship or distorting the information that the government allows its own people to consume and that the government projects to the rest of the world through their global discourse power, uh, and I think that that regime of censored information is ripe for a broad constellation of false narratives dictated by the ideologically anchored propaganda department of China. But I say, wait a second, let's not ignore the fact that the United States, the other side, again, the same relationship coin, we don't have a propaganda department. But we have a powerful uh, culture of information distortion. Example: the most prominent right now is a polarized information discourse conveyed through social media and cable television that propagates and disseminates the view that the presidential election of uh, 2020 was rigged and stolen. And over half of our one of our leading political party still believes in the big lie uh, of the 2020 presidential election. How much better are we than China, who explicitly censors information by allowing such a large swath of a uh, polarized American society to believe and act and vote on this big lie? And it's so it's just as damaging to us to allow that to occur and the the role played by social media I go at length to develop that in the book uh, is particularly worrisome uh, in that respect. and you know we're coming up on another presidential election in the United States right now where that dark side of our own strain of information distortion will be in a glaring spotlight for us to see in the United States and for the world to see, looking at, again, that bright city on the
0: shining hill. Uh, Well, you end that key part three uh, with an observation uh, that brings us uh, back, as you put it, to whether it is strict censorship in China or polarized big lies in America. Uh, The implications are the same in one respect, one important respect. False narratives are not self-correcting, as you put it, uh, leaving us careening recklessly down the path of conflict escalation. Enter part four of your book. Uh, It's called Dueling Narratives. You open by noting that mending the relationship starts with good leadership. You've mentioned a bit of that already. And the willingness uh, to commit to areas of mutual interest, such as climate change or global health, within which binding frameworks uh, can be worked out to deal with structural conflicts over technology and trade. Trust is a key element here in your argument, and you point out that historical biases are like false narratives in terms of setting the relationship up for failure when one or the other nation uh, does not meet the preconceived notions. That said, what are the concrete steps you recommend for renewing the trust in in this relationship?
1: It's not easy to restore trust in a relationship where there is none. Example um, A in that regard is February 4th, 2023, America shoots down a Chinese surveillance balloon and uh, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin picks up a secure line to call his counterpart at the Ministry of Defense uh, in China, and no one answers the phone. When there's no communication, no engagement, trust is impossible to reattain. So it's just a a symptom of a much bigger problem. The trust agenda is, I envision it, as picking fruit off a tree. There's low-hanging fruit that should be picked first. Easy steps that can be done. Reopen closed consulates in both nations. Chengdu in China, uh, Houston in the United States. Restart popular foreign student exchange programs like the Fulbright program. Relaxing visa requirements. federal constraints on non-governmental organizations, NGOs. Tougher to do, but equally important in rebuilding the trust in all aspects of our joint civil society. And finally, the big mega issues that are existential threats to the world. To say nothing of the threats they pose to the U.S. and China, climate change, global health, and cybersecurity. We should be actively engaged in all of those areas as well. Uh, If we can rebuild some semblance of trust, starting with the low-hanging fruit first, Keith, then I think we can move on to do two other things to resolve this conflict. The first is focusing on opening up our markets uh, by lowering investment barriers to one another through a bilateral investment treaty. We were 95% of the way done in achieving that. Uh, At the end of the Obama administration, Trump took it off the table. We need to go back to the table. And the third uh, leg of the stool is the one that I personally have the most invested in and the most excited about. Uh, It is recognizing that the balloon problem uh, is a manifestation of a failed architecture of engagement between our two countries. And I propose the establishment of a US-China Secretariat as a new architecture of engagement that is located in a neutral jurisdiction like Switzerland or Singapore that is staffed equally by large complements of Chinese uh, and American professionals that has a broad remit to focus on all aspects of the relationship, uh, like uh, economics and trade, uh, technology, uh, innovation policy, subsidies of state-owned enterprises, health, climate, cyber, and yes, even human rights. The Secretariat has the, uh, the power to convene uh, experts when problems arise, such as COVID-19, which we, we could have addressed far more effectively on a collaborative basis by bringing in leading scientists, epidemiologists, and public health practitioners instead of suffering the carnage of massive uh, and lingering illness. The convening power could also be used to troubleshoot difficult problems when they arise, like the balloon. And finally, the secretariat uh, should be charged with an important uh, oversight function of compliance of uh, existing and new agreements, as well as being empowered with a dispute resolution mechanism to address uh, the inevitable frictions when they arise. Uh, This is a new approach. Um, uh, It's one that uh, actually I found a lot of interest in when I've spoken about it in Asia, but very little interest in the United States because we are not interested in engagement. We are convinced that China is the enemy, just like we were convinced that uh, the Soviet Union was the enemy in the early 1950s. We don't want to talk to them. A the re-engagement with China is viewed as almost uh, a treasonous uh, approach. And when you propose that to uh, American politicians, uh, you are criticized heavily in that light. So, um, you know, that's my plan. It starts with trust, but there's much more to it than that.
0: Those interested in a more nuanced understanding of our most pressing geopolitical relationship would do well. To pick up a copy of Accidental Conflict, America, China, and the Clash of False Narratives, published by Yale University Press in 2022, Professor Stephen Roach, comparative political economist and seasoned China analyst respected in both Asia and the West, thank you for sharing your insights and thoughts about the critical China-American relationship with us today and some possible paths forward. Thank you very much, Keith. I appreciate your thoughtful questions.